All right, let's open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to look at verses 22 through 27 together. Our brother and I had spent a wonderful summer in Prague and in Bratislava several years ago on a short-term missions trip. It was an incredible summer. We saw God do incredible things in our own life, and we saw God do incredible things in a country that had been under the communist club for a long time, constantly trying to beat out God out of a country. Uh, The missions teams had just gotten done with their respective stints in various parts of Eastern Europe and had come back for a final debriefing and then a final send-off before everyone would go back to their respective universities that they were students, like Pete would go back to Penn State. And for those of us that were in campus ministry, we went back to wherever we were going, and I was going back to Brown University. Before we left, though, the longer-term missionaries, those that were there for a year, two years, five years, ten years, they encouraged and challenged those of us that had been there just for the summer to actually consider coming back and taking a longer stint at missions, a year, two years, five years, or maybe long term. And I remember while the various people were coming forward with their challenges and coming forward with ways of encouraging us to consider this, that I was kind of halfway there and halfway home. And as everyone spoke, by the second, I was more and more at home. I was more and more imagining my mom's secret recipe Uh, marinade for a grilled steak. I was more and more imagining creamy, creamy smashed potatoes, mounds of it on my plate. I was imagining homemade bread dripping with butter, and I was imagining uh, homegrown, fresh, ripe Pennsylvania red tomatoes in a fresh salad with homemade blue cheese dressing. And not only that, I was imagining glass after tall glass of fresh, cool milk that wasn't curdled and that was in a glass that hadn't been drunk 200 times by other people without being clean before I got to it. I was imagining fresh, clean glasses, milk. I was imagining the fact that maybe, maybe there would be fresh carrot cake, homemade carrot cake, that there would be apple pie if I was still hungry with ice cream on top and then cookie after cookie and glass after glass of fresh milk. While I was imagining this, she came up to speak. And when she got up to speak, she just spread her arms out and says, Take a look at all of us before you. Take a look. All the long-term missionaries were up here. And she says, Take a look at all of us up here before you. And she said, Where are the men Where are you, men? And all of a sudden, all images of food and my tasty favorites fled right before me. And my mind and my heart were fixed on these gutsy missionaries with a token sprinkling of men here and there. And I was revived in mission. Once again, every single one of us in this room need to be revived in mission. 
Every single one of us need to be revived in mission. Now, there are some of us here that are thinking, well, you know, I don't, I don't get all the Jesus stuff. In fact, there can't be just one Jesus stuff. There can't be just one religion. There's, there's all kinds of different religions, and they all should be treated on equal footing. So to talk about mission really doesn't make sense to me. Why would I need to be revived in mission? And I would say to you, those of you that are thinking this way, I understand that. And I understand, in one sense, how you think and feel. And there was a pastor in New York, and he kind of put it this way. He said, your way of thinking is not the way of thinking in the Middle East. In other words, for most Western Americans, the way we think is we think that everything needs to be treated on an equal footing and everything has equal validity, every belief system. And that particular belief, though, is not held by those in the Middle East because they think there's only one true religion in the Middle East. And you could lose your head if you went against it. And so what we have here is one cultural belief saying everything is equal. There are no distinctions. Everything is valid. And then another cultural belief that says, no, there is only one true religion. And the bottom line is, as he says, is that what makes your cultural beliefs more privileged than someone else's cultural beliefs? What makes it so? He says this is a very particular view of God. It's a view of God that has a leap of faith. And why should your privileged cultural belief be taken priority over another is basically the question. So if you're thinking this way, what I want to see happen is you be revived in mission. And that's this. The God of the Bible makes himself known not in any particular cultural belief. But he makes himself known in a cross-cultural reality, a cosmic, heaven-earth-rending reality. Something that litters across not only earth, but it shines across heaven, and that is in the resurrection of his son. That that's not a time-warped cultural belief. It's a thundering historical event. Okay? Now, there are others of us that need to be revived in mission, but we need to be revived in mission not by guilt. You know what that? You know how that is. I've, been, I've sat through many, many, a talk and many, many, a lecture on being revived in mission. It was usually by guilt, and it would go something like this. You're not doing enough. In fact, how many of you know, how many of you know how many Christians are in the field of banking? And we wouldn't, and we would be given statistics. And the call was, if there are so many Christians in banking, why send one more into banking when we can send one over here? Okay? And so many of us have been revived and motivated to missions by guilt like that. Others of us have been revived in missions for self-glory. This is the one that got me. You can be the next Jim Elliott. The next red flaming-haired Scottish Mary Slessor to evangelize Africa. You can be the next William Carey. Your missionary logs and journals and expeditions and exploits that you've gone all over the world with will one day be read by millions. And you'll be sung and seen by countless Christians for generations. Right? 
And so some of us are revived that way for self-glory. Others of us were revived by mission because we want to get God's attention. In other words, if I'm involved in personal ministry or if I'm involved in mission, God will actually love me more. He might even fix me. He might draw a little closer to me. I might sense more of his presence and his power in my life. I'll get God's attention. Now, what this passage does for us, though, is it lays out something so much greater to revive you in mission. Not guilt, not vain glory, and not to get God's attention. But something else. Let's stand for the hearing of God's word. We've been spending time in 21 all the way down to verse 21. So we're just going to pick it up at 22 and end at 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring glory into it. And its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh God, we do acknowledge that we desperately need to be revived in mission. And you know this more than we do. And you know how easy it is for us to find almost a false reviving power and trying to get your attention and being driven by fear and guilt and even pursuing vain glory. And so, O oh Lord, we ask that this passage that you would shine on the page. And you would revive us. Oh Lord, would you come down and do your reviving work in your people for the sake of your name and for the good of your people. Amen. I was just thinking of something here while we were praying that there is, there's like... A couple different veins of philosophies or theologies of preaching that are out there today. There's one in which we're heavy on lecture and we're heavy on instruction and we're heavy on uh, practical application. And there's some good points to that and there's some necessary biblical referent points to that. But then there's another view of preaching that the actual preaching event is a heaven come down event. That it's a God pushing in event. And if God pushes in through the preached word, that in and of itself is the application that preaching is designed to have. In other words, Dr. Jones said, if you leave with a greater sense of God, you were preached at. And that's why he forbid taking notes and sermons. Now, I'm not doing that. You can take all the notes you want. But his point was to drive home that it's not an intellectual gathering more of data to hang on to. 
it was an actual God come to you event. And you left with the echoes of God's voice ringing in your head and in your heart. And you want that every Sunday. Okay? All right. Now, we're looking at Jesus' permanent presence with his people in his place. I liked it too. You can smile. 21, 9 through 27. That's the main big idea. We find that big idea in verses 9 through 10. The big idea of this whole stretch of 21 is Jesus' permanent presence with his people in his permanent place. Now, this whole passage in chapter 21 has given us four applications of what that big idea looks like in our lives now. Because you know and I know that that permanent presence with his people in his place is a future orientation. It's all about the new heavens and the new earth that are coming, and while the first heavens and the first earth pass away. So it has a future orientation, but it's not meant to be future-oriented in that it's detached from you here. And so there's four applications that actually get pressed into the present because of this tremendous idea. And so we've tackled the first one. Remember, we found that in verse 11, and we saw that Jesus is coming for you. He's coming to make you permanently holy and happy. And because he's coming for you, it actually pushes in in the present power and hope to keep plodding on in perseverance now. And we've unpacked that. Then we found the second application was in 12 through 21. You belong to God. And we saw that there's a lasting security about belonging to God. That you can belong to a a whole lot of things. But the most permanent, fixed reality, a secure reality, is that you belong to God. You're His. Okay? The third application was also found in verses 12 through 21. And this was this. It was found in those 12 precious stones, remember? And the, the gold that was transparent in glass. Remember, all the, the irresistible beauty about this city is that it had this design and this proportions in its design to reflect the light of something else. And so there's an irresistible attractiveness to the city, not that it has its own origin of light, but that it's designed to actually reflect the multicolored glory of someone else. And so we found in this application a lasting significance. And that is that God has designed each and every one of his people in this life to reflect the multicolored glory of his nature and his work before all the world. Okay. Now, the fourth is found in verses 22 through 27. And the fourth is being revived in mission. And that's what we're going to tackle right now. Being revived in mission. Now, Lucy is not going to budge. And I don't know why Charlie Brown even thinks that he can get her to budge in any type of situation. You and I know Lucy doesn't budge. Her arms are folded. Her face is firmly fixed. But Charlie Brown pleads with her, doesn't he? Over and over again, Charlie pleads, Lucy, you must be more loving. The world needs love. Charlie pleads, right? Make this world a better place, Lucy, by loving one person at least. And at that, Lucy does what? She whirls around and 
Charlie Brown goes flipping backwards and she screams, you blockhead, right? And I love this line. The world I love, it's people I can't stand. Now, those of you that are Dostoevsky fans, you know that that line came from Brothers Karamazov, from Yusuf. He was the puffed up world person that was very sentimental and romantic and seemed to be very hospitable on the outside. But remember the main character when he assessed him, he said, look, he loves the world. It's people he can't stand. Right? One of the first things this passage does to us and does to me to revive you in mission is to replace the impersonal world with real people in your heart. That's what this passage does. Where does it do this? Let's look at verse 24a. By its light, the nations will walk. Jump down to 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who are the real people in these verses? Who are the real people that will walk that walk? Who are the real people that will be forbidden from entering the paradise? Who are these real people? In verse 24, it says the nations were walk. If we were to take one of those new spy satellites and zoom in on the nations, you know how it is. You start way, way up in the stratosphere and you see the earth and that little satellite starts zooming in on the nations and it starts moving through the mass and the multitudes of the nations on this victory parade walk on heaven's golden streets that are so translucent and so transparent and so glorified that they're crystal clear as glass and light is radiating out of them. And every step you are walking on sunshine. And it's just everyone's marching. The satellite zooms in. Nations, nations, nations. And it zooms in on one particular nation. So we, we follow as it goes down and we'll call it the Mongolian nation. And as it gets into the Mongolian nation, there's this, this sea of dark-headed people. And it walks through and focuses in through this whole sea and finally lands on one particular head. And we find out it's a woman. And it's a woman that has struggled with her sin her whole life. In fact, at night, many a night, she's wept at how her sin has affected those she loves all around her. Poor in spirit, brokenhearted over her sin. She lost her husband, we find out, when she's 45 years old, and she struggles to raise five children in a culture that needs a man in order to survive. She never remarried. Right? A real person among the nations. Well, who will forever be unclean and never enter this paradise? Who are the ones who are so enslaved and so scarred by their God replacements in life that they're permanently stained 
permanently scarred by the effects of their sin. That they believe so many promises, the false promise of all these God replacements that say, look, if you come over here, I'll give you life. I'll be your best friend. I'll give you happiness and joy. I'll be your salvation. I'll be God to you. And many worship at these God replacements. And as the scripture says, they've been kidnapped by lies that sound very, very good. False pretensions have dragged them away. And they actually believe that the lies that they're believing, it makes sense to them wherever they're at. Their worldview makes perfectly good sense to them. They're betrayed and they're tortured by the evil one. They have never-ending despair one day, never-ending misery one day, never-ending darkness one day, never-ending holy wrath one day. Who are these people, these real people? I saw a who of 27 this spring. I saw him about two, three times a week every evening. And may he move into verse 24 from verse 27. But when you met him, if you were to meet him like I did, you heard him before you met him. And when you heard him, it was always this constant simmering anger and irritation at someone, someone on the baseball field. And he found out very quickly after the first day, it was his son. Get your arm back. Get down on the ball. Get the bat around. Run faster. And when his son achieved greatly and made a fantastic play, it was charge the ball next time. Hit the ball further next time. Don't pivot off your front point, your front foot this time. Pivot off the back foot next time. Driving, relentless, pressure, perfectionism, pounding, endless, picking. Always driving, always hammering, never relenting, smothering and suffocating, blind and unaware. Right? You find a father, a real person, who has never been comforted by the gospel and therefore has no comfort to give his own son. That's a real person. And how many of these real people in 24 and 27 that are in everyday situations and circumstances of your life a distressed single mother, mother, a rebellious teenager, a forgotten grandfather, a widowed 50-year-old, the insecure boss, the decorated soldier, the proud athlete, the beautiful model, the Kazakh father, the Nigerian daughter, your child, your parent, your classmate, real people like you and me. 
Charles Spurgeon said, We have not yet sufficiently learned the value of an immortal soul if we do not feel that we would be willing to live, say, 70 years. He says, We don't feel the grip of an immortal soul unless we're really willing to say, I will live for 70 years to see that person come to Christ. And that was my life's mission. He goes on to say, and he said, or someone who's willing to compass the whole globe, preach in every city and town and village, if he might only be rewarded at the last with just one convert. Go to every nation, every tribe, every door, plead and pray, and only one comes to Christ. And yet, that person is filled with pleasure that that was his life's mission. So to be revived in mission, what needs to happen according to this passage is we've got to replace that impersonal world with real people. We've got to see the real people and the real interactions and the real day-to-day situations that we bump up against people. And you see those real people every day, and I see those real people every day. And that's why Paul, if he was preaching this passage, he said, look, don't look at people from a worldly point of view anymore. Look at them as immortal souls and real people. As C.S. Lewis said, if you saw them in heaven, you'd fall down thinking they were God. If you saw them in hell, you'd cover your eyes and shriek. It was the worst, most ghastly horror you've ever seen. Immortal souls, real people. All right, let's look at another thing that is in this passage that is here to revive us in mission. There's a famed, there was a famed architect. His name was Sir Christopher Wren, and he was directing the building efforts of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Well, there's a journalist who was at the site, and he started interviewing some of the workers, and he wanted the workers to answer this question, what are you doing here? You know, what are you doing here? Why are you working here? And the first worker said, I'm cutting stone for three shillings a day. The second said, I'm, I'm putting in a long 10 hours day labor of hard work. It's my call and it's my vocation. And the third said, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren build the greatest cathedral in Great Britain for the glory of God. To be revived in mission is to remember what the ultimate mission is is if you're going to be revived in mission if i'm going to be revived in mission we've got to remember what the ultimate mission is the ultimate mission is not saving souls from god's holy wrath is incredible and as purposeful and as real as that mission is that's not the ultimate mission And it's not the ultimate mission to get someone saved, quote, out of a particular sin or lifestyle, like someone who's trapped in alcoholism or someone who's trapped in drugs or someone who's a prostitute or someone who's been in an abusive situation. That's not the ultimate mission of the church and of us. That's not the ultimate mission according to this passage. It's not also making people's lives better, fixing people, getting them better lives. You know, if you, if you do have Jesus, there are temporal, tremendous temporal benefits that happen, not to mention the incredible spiritual glories that happen. But our ultimate end is not fixing people and making their lives better here, rearranging temporal blessings, not even putting families back together and marriages back together. 
And our ultimate mission is not even exercising your own gifts, finding your place in God's design and his purposes in your life. Like, I need to know why I'm here, and I need to have my purpose in life, and I need to exercise the unique me and the unique potentials that God's given me. Tremendous things. That's not the ultimate mission. And finally, the ultimate mission is not equipping the saints. It's not making disciples, and it's not training and equipping people for holiness and for great commission ministry. That's not it. The mission ultimately, according to this passage, is making much of God. I mean, look at it. Look at 22 through 20. Look at 22 and 23. Look that there's no temple. There's no sun. There's no moon. There's only God. It's like this whole passage has been moving to this, these last few verses. These last few verses are actually summarizing and putting on display 1 through 21. And when you finally get to, to 22, you recognize there is no temple. There's no sun and there's no moon. All you have is God. And the whole passage has been leading you to Him. To bang into Him. To see that He's it. He's the end. He's the ultimate mission. So what we find here is that God is the temple and God is the city light. And God is how the nations live and move and have their being. One commentator said, look, how intense must this light be that the nations, the multitudes, walk by it? I mean, they walk by it. James says God is called the Father of heavenly lights. Paul says God lives in an unapproachable light. If you look at verse 25, the light is so bright. Look at 25. The light is so bright that there is no longer night. Now, those of you that have read John, the Gospel of John, you read the epistles, you're getting an idea of what John is like. That is not, John is not just talking about the evening temporal time. To John, it has lots of meaning that means there is no more darkness. It's likened to what happened in verse 1 where the sea is no more. Remember, the sea was the origin. It's where the, the beast came out of. The dragon called the, the beast out of the, the sea. It's the symbol in all Israel's history of total chaos. And it's the, the realm of the dead. And when you go down there, you never come back. It's darkness and it's death and it's pollution. And it's the stain of sin that's infected the whole universe and covered all the waters of creation. And night for John is that. And so when he says there is no more night, there's no more of that. Friday night, we had to rush one of our children to the hospital. And I can tell you, there is no, I don't know what the better, I don't know what the word is. There is nothing worse than your child being in excruciating pain, fiercely grabbing your hands, looking you in the eyes and saying, Daddy, help me. I would rather face a grizzly bear that hadn't eaten in two months. Honestly. 
One day there will be no more of that stuff. One day there will only be night, I mean light, and no more night. One day there will only be God and light shining in you, in me, in the place, and we will walk by it. All the nations. Right? So what does this making much of God specifically look like in mission or your personal ministry to others? As you can see, I'm keeping our old liturgy going alive and well. I'll keep it going for a couple more minutes. Well, the key word here is temple, isn't it? I saw no temple. And when you think of temple, what does a temple point to? Well, the the function of a temple is worship. And so what specifically mission looks like or personal ministry to others looks like ultimately ultimately the end of all mission is making much of God but what does that making much of God look like in ministry what does it look like for us as a church and what does it look like for us as individuals engaged in personal ministry to others what it looks like is what it's talked about here in verse 21 it looks like worship it looks like the goal of all ministry being worship Worship makes much of God. See, what worship does is it sees God. What worship does is it it sees a specific reality of God. Notice that the glory of God shines, but it shines through a lamp. And the lamp is the lamb. And what we see about the glory of God and the way that he reveals himself is through his son. And as he reveals himself through his son, what we see about his son is the lamb. So it's a kind of redemptive kind of light. And so worship centers, and it centers around seeing the glories of Jesus and the, and the lamp of the Lamb. And it centers on receiving the light that comes from this lamp, the light of forgiveness, the light of a righteousness that's not our own, the light of his permanent presence, the light of the power he gives in his Holy Spirit. I mean, there's all kinds of light there. And when we see him and know him, and trust in Him, and hope in Him, and find help in Him, and find healing in Him, and find change because of Him, and find empowerment to live and walk because of Him. What that does is it exalts God. And it shows Him to be the Father of lights, the light of every good thing, and the fountain of salvation. That you can drink and drink and drink and never get to the bottom of. And so what worship does, it actually brings God's glory and your good together, inseparably connected. Okay? And so the goal of mission, as Piper would say, the reason why that missions exist is because worship doesn't exist there yet. The reason why we go to unreached areas and the reason why we go to our neighbors and the reason why we go to our children and the reason why we go to our parents and the reason why we go to that screaming father and the reason why we go to any of us is because worship isn't there yet. And so missions exists to create worshipers. That's where it's all heading. Okay? Now, some of you know you're not a worshiper of God this morning. 
And what I want you to see from this passage is it doesn't mean you're not worshiping. It means that you're worshiping anything this morning. It means that you'll worship your job. It means that you'll worship your reputation. It means that you'll worship your personal comfort. It means that you'll worship money. It means that you'll worship so-and-so's affection. It means that you'll worship being accepted by the boys. It means that you'll worship anything. And anything other than God is a horrible master. And it will chew up your soul. Right? So I want you to take heart, though, because I want you to look in verse 24. There's a fascinating inclusion here that if you're reading quickly, you won't get it. Look at 24. By its light, the nations will walk. Oh, and then here's this wonderful conjunction. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. This is a victory parade. It's taking the image of a Roman triumph when the defeating armies are dragged through the city by the the victorious army so they can see these are the ones you feared so much. Any survivors, that is. The surviving generals, the surviving soldiers, they're chained, they're bound, they're walked through, led through triumphantly by the conquering army. And the people that see these enemies defeated are just in, well, they'd be in awe. They'd be terribly comfort, comforted, no longer have them ravaging our cities, right? But the image switches in that it's not a victory parade in which the enemies are led in defeat. The image switches to a victory parade in which the enemies are led into worship. The kings of the earth. These are the same kings in Revelation 17, 18 and 19 that align themselves with the beast against Christ and against the church. That's phenomenal. How in the world did they get there? And why would the passage put that conjunction in there so that you see them? Answer? Because there's more mercy than sin. That the Lamb has more mercy than there is sin of someone who lines himself with a beast. And so for those of us that know we're not worshiping the Lamb this morning... I want you to forsake the false worship and move to the true worship because the Lamb was slain for sinners and there's more mercy in Him than there is sin in you. And you can trust Him and move from 27 to 24. Okay? Alright, we've got to end. So here's the ending. We've seen to be revived in missions, you've got to replace impersonal, impersonal, the impersonal world with personal, real people. Second thing we have to do is remember what ultimate mission is. Ultimate mission is making much of God by creating worshipers of God. Okay? That's why we're here. The second, or what's the last way? This is what we'll end with. This lady was watching her children in the playground when this new car comes speeding into the parking lot. And the new car comes speeding into the parking lot, finds its parking spot, shoots into the parking spot, slams on the brakes, the gravel slides, outbounds this beautiful brunette, this attractive young lady, practically bounding, skipping across the parking lot 
to a secluded place in the park on the other side of the playground near the lake. Now, when this lady saw this, she wondered, what could this attractive young woman, who could this attractive young woman be meeting in such a secluded spot with so much excitement and enthusiasm? And her imagination got the best of her, right? She started thinking about, is it her, her overworked husband? They have this special date. Her overworked husband and her are meeting in this special date at this particular place. And then she thought, well, maybe it's you know, one of her best friends. They've set up this special time together. And she even went beyond that and said, could this be a, a, a secretive lover's tryst? You know, her imagination's just going wild. And she says, I want to find out who shows up. And so immediately she's waiting, and, and no one ultimately, quickly, immediately shows up. Her children get the best of her. She gets distracted for a time, and finally she snaps to, and she glances over at the lady again, and then she realizes what it was that, that caused her to lightly step and filled with excitement and enthusiasm. She was reading her Bible all alone. couldn't wait to be with the Lord. She couldn't wait to worship. And there you have it. How do you and I ultimately get revived in mission? By reviving our worship. Because worship is not only the end of mission, it empowers mission. drives us to mission. Not because we have to, not because of guilt and fear, and not because of vainglory, because He's infinitely worthy. And you enjoy Him like you can enjoy nothing else. And from Him is the fountain of life and salvation. You'll walk in that light. And how do you do that? If your worship is small, what that means is, if our, let's say this, if our mission is small, if our mission as a church is small and our mission as individuals is small, the answer isn't anything but going back to our worship. Going back to reviving our worship. And so what we need to do is we need to admit, admit that we lack the worship We need to be honest and we need to be humble and we need to be utterly dependent to admit our need and our lack of worship and that he can only give it. And after we admit it, we need to ask for the light. We need to see that the lamp is the lamb and we got to go to the we got to go to the lamp. We have to go to the glories of Christ. We have to see the riches of his worth and his work. We have to get more of that. We have to have, as Paul would say, the light of the glory of God in Christ shine into our hearts. And that's something that only God can do. He only can shine the light, and He shines the light through the lamp of the Lamb, through the gospel message. And when that light is shined or shines into our heart, in the same way that God said, let there be light in creation, your worship is revived and renewed again. And so you've got to admit you need that, you've got to ask for that, and then you've got to act in faith that God will give it. 
That means when you read your Bible, read to see Him. Don't read to find a biblical principle. Don't read to find a how-to, but read to find Him. And then when you found Him, there might be some instruction there on what, what walking with Him looks like, what walking in the light looks like. Okay? All right. Amen.